You're listening to This Rhetorical Life, a podcast dedicated to the practice, pedagogy, and public circulation of rhetoric in our lives. Carrie Ann here. Happy to be introducing today's episode featuring Kate Siegfried and Dylan Rollo interviewing feminist and rhetoric scholar Jennifer Tybersi. I wanted to preface by saying that this episode was produced over the summer, which is why there is a reference to the gay club shooting incident at Pulse in Orlando, Florida. It's important to note that due to fast-paced news streams and the immediacy of social media, Events such as these tend to be quickly forgotten in mainstream news and U.S. national memory more broadly, though the issues that come up in light of these events are certainly not erased and definitely not forgotten, especially in queer and Latinx communities. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode for its inquisitive consideration of queer politics and the rhetoricity of sex museums, but I'll let Kate and Dylan explain more about what you'll hear. And I'm Dylan Rollo. And on today's episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Jennifer Tiberzi, Assistant Professor of Feminist Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. In addition to her work as a professor, Tiberzi is also a performance artist and a curator. She's performed in Austin, Chicago, Houston, Mexico City, and Tijuana. While working as the Director of Programming at the Leather Archives and Museum in Chicago, she curated several exhibitions that explore the intersection of race, transgender identity, disability, and sexuality. And in 2015, she curated an exhibition titled Irreverent, a Celebration of Censorship at the Leslie Lohman Museum of Gay and Lesbian Art in New York City. Today we'll be talking about queer cultures, the rhetoricity of museum space, and what role museums play in the formation of sexual subjectivities and national sexual cultures. This interview took place earlier this spring, but as we've completed production work through the past week or two, these themes carry a pressing weight in the wake of the Orlando shooting in which 49 queer and trans individuals, mostly Latino men, were murdered at the gay club Pulse. Gay clubs, as explicitly queer spaces, have a long and rich history within the LGBT community as places of cultural expression, survival, renewal, and imagination that enable formations of political relationships and queer kinships. These queer spaces are vital, even as marriage equality is lauded as a state-sanctioned celebration of gay and lesbian love. What Tiberzi's project helps us both see and articulate is that rather, this contemporary moment is a struggle over sex, desire, and the public performance of queer intimacies. Reflecting on our talk with Dr. Tiberzi in conjunction with the events in the Pulse nightclub on Latin night, we are left considering the unexamined intersections of queerness and race, what truly counts as a queer space, and what the potentialities of explicitly queer space are for the queer community at this particular moment. Today, we'll carry these questions to a different queer space, the museum. We sat down with Dr. Tiberzi to talk about her recently published book, Sex Museums, The Politics and Performance of Display. Combining ethnographic field methods with archival research and visual art and performance analysis, 
Tiberzi positions museums as spaces where civic and cultural struggles play out, highlighting the rhetorical nature of museums through elements such as display and embodied movement. Tiberzi brings to the forefront how sex is managed, disciplined, and erased from museum spaces, and the repercussions of waging sex as a political tool for the silencing of marginalized voices. Arguing that all museums are sex museums, Tiberzi emphasizes the necessity of recognizing museums as central sites of civic struggle over public sexual spaces, historical genealogies of aesthetics and affect, and the recognition of a wide array of sexual practices and identities. To start, we asked Jen to tell us what brought her to the project undertaken in her book. that the project was brought to me um, by the fact um, that I was interested in doing work on sexual public culture. And as a cisgendered woman uh, who reads as female and feminine um, in most contexts, mm -hmm. I came upon an impasse a bit in where I would actually be doing this research. Um, as both of you may well know, um, female sexual spaces, even trans-specific spaces, queer women's spaces have systematically been closing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, probably one of the most upsetting uh, closures um, as of late, although you being so close to New York City know well that um, there are few and far between uh, bars that cater. We are, we are relegated to nights, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, where sometimes even then, we are accused of taking over um, and de-eroticizing spaces simply through the presence of our bodies. The Lex closing um, in San Francisco, which was a really important place for queer women loving women and the trans communities um, in San Francisco. And so um, I started to talk to my colleagues and mentors about where I could go to do research that would combine um, my disciplinary balance. I have a background in English literature, background in drama, and staged theater, mm -hmm. and really wanting to harness a performance studies approach that was combining methodologies from the humanities and social sciences. So to be in the archive, to deal in dust, to do textual studies, um, to do visual culture and multimodal art um, at the same time that I could speak to real people living now working with and through these genres of material culture just as I was in the museum space. So um, one of my mentors told me, do you know we have a, a sex museum, a, an erotic museum in, this, in, in Chicago where I was doing my PhD at Northwestern in the Department of Performance Studies and I said, no, do tell. And so um, they told me about the Leather Archives and Museum and um, that leads up to the story when I'm walking down um, North Greenview in Rogers Park looking for this nondescript building. At the time, the only thing that marked it as a leather space were two flags uh, with black leather boots on them and the acronym L-A-N-D-M. Um, 
and a lot of people who live in Rogers Park or have lived in Rogers Park or on uh, uptown in Chicago or in Evanston, even today say, I had no idea that we had this here. And that was intentional. They were protecting themselves mm -hmm. um, from people like uh, Peter La Barbera, who started a, um, it's been designated as a hate group by the Southern uh, Poverty Law Center. It's called Americans for the Truth About Homosexuality. Um, and other naysayers um, around town and in the Illinois area. And so I come up on the uh, staircase leading up to this building marked L.A.N.D.M. And Jeffrey Storer, who has since become a very good friend of mine, him and Rick Storer, um, as well as uh, uh, the archivist um, on staff there, um, and asked me, you know, kind of inquisitively, kind of suspiciously, okay, who are you? What do you want? Are you here to see the museum? And yes, of course, but I'm also popping by to see, to learn more about you and the culture and. I'm writing my dissertation, which for some marginalized communities um, is a red flag, right? Um, Absolutely. To be studied, to be put under the lens, and what are my intentions? Um, and so over, I would say it continues, you know, that was 2004. For the past 11 years, I've been working with and through um, leather fetish and sadomasochistic sex communities, um, being vulnerable. Uh, within those communities, um, gaining trust through doing and not just logos, um, through giving my time, um, my care. Um, I dedicated the book, uh, Sex Museums, to the Leather Archives and Museum um, because they were the first sexualized group, erotic group, um, that I did not at the time count myself as a part of that really warmly embraced me and invited me to learn uh, all about the very rich histories and the codes and symbols um, that make up the leather archives and community and the populations they represent. And so it was really the Leather Archives and Museum in conjunction with my mentors who supported me um, and who opened up a world where me within my body could do research on explicit sex and sexuality without judgment and in a safe space. And so I do say I'm always grateful to the naysayers for reorienting me and redirecting me to what I'm doing in this project, which is why are there lines and boundaries and parameters for the sayable when it comes to this banal, everyday, ephemeral, and corporeal thing we call sex that is so much a part of the grain of what it is to be human. The book sex museums is my attempt to unpack why that has become, what it has become, and the influence of one extremely important space in terms of post-enlightenment Western knowledge production and dissemination, the space we call the museum, that so many people regard as a neutered space, as a de-eroticized space. To dig into the specificities of what makes all museums sex museums, we asked Jen to talk about how particular museum elements, such as the management of display, affect and emotion, aesthetic, and curatorial practices operate as a form of public pedagogy within museum spaces. 
Where can we locate rhetoricity in the materiality of the museum and how bodies move through and interact with that space? How does this come to bear on how we do and do not think about sex? And what repercussions does this have on the formation of sexual sociality between bodies, objects, and public space? Maybe I'll start with the case study from chapter one. Um, I unpack this little concept called display choreography as a kind of script that was born at the same time that theater audiences were being acculturated into bourgeois modes of spectatorship. Chin scratching, polite applause at the end, um, and then the stillness and the coercion to be quiet, to sit still, which was not always the case in the 19th century, particularly in melodrama theaters where there was sex happening in the audiences, there was cruising happening, what we would call cruising today, in the audiences. There was raucous, they responded, there was more of a call and response, if you will. And then the institution of particular modes of sensual interaction in museums that prioritized visuality, over, for example, tactility. I don't go into too much the Wunderkammer, the, the wonder rooms or the cabinets of curiosities, but the distant cousins to the museums, of course, when they were under the provenance of elite white men mostly, um, you could touch everything. You know, It was only when museums as a democratic quote-unquote project, where the objects from the princely dynastic realms became the property of the masses, and the Louvre in Paris was the first example of that, when we couldn't touch, when we started to remove touch as a sensual mode for learning and interpreting objects in the museum. And that was a total classist argument, right, that the rabble will come in and put their dirty hands on these precious objects, right? That's, that's one side of it, of what we have lost when the museum becomes instantiated as a space in the post-enlightenment world. But display choreography refers to that in all these kinds of codified, coerced movements. Another example that I might want to talk about is chapter three, warning signs. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you know, these kind of inconsequential, treated as inconsequential parts of the decoration that are not on display, but that always mark something as distinct from the rest of what is being displayed in a museum or gallery, right? And so I write a lot about these signs that I collect. I love to collect warning signs. So if anyone out there has any warning signs, send them to Gentiversi because I continue my collection because they're so interesting the way they're worded what they mark, where they're placed, and how they condition, they not only reflect anxieties, they shape anxieties. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say determine, but sometimes, within that context determine, but certainly shape our relationship to that which lies beyond the sign labeled warning or explicit. And a really important figure in that chapter is the idea of the child with a capital C. Mm -hmm. The symbolic idea of the Victorian non-sexual child who is usually gendered female, who is usually raced white, and who is always assumed to be not heterosexual, but on the path to yeah. being heterosexual. And my kind of practical response to that is, what about the queer child? What about the child of color? What about the Palestinian child? And what does it do 
to certain subjectivities that actually feel nourished and soul-fed by finally being able to see bodies, issues, and experiences that reflect their lives. And this constant assumption of who we need to protect, and I do make a little fun argument in there as well that we're really not talking about children. We're really talking about a very specific concept of white heterosexual masculinity and the assumption that this subject or this type of masculinity is so fragile that it can be shattered and traumatized by the mere insinuation that an artist might make that might include that viewer into a homoerotic gaze. With white heterosexual masculinity as the subject of protection by traditional museums, and with the neglect of marginalized subjectivities in the space of the museum, we asked Taberzi how her concept of queer curatorship might help to constructively disrupt this normativity, and what a queer approach to museum curatorship might look like. Here, Taberzi highlights what it means to contend with ethically fraught objects as a method and enactment of queer curatorship which, in this section, takes the form of objects with historical ties to both gay and leather kink cultures and antebellum slavery. As general recount, contending with these histories led to her curation of an exhibit at the Leather Archives and Museum, in which, as she states in her book, she includes objects of different historical time periods in order to recognize the original use of objects as a tool of discipline, empire, and non-consensual torture, and the later adaptation of the object as an instrument for enacting an erotics of pleasure and pain. By demonstrating that histories of discipline and eroticism are not mutually exclusive, this enactment of queer curatorship forces us to contend with fears and anxieties regarding sex and race, as well as racism and the politics of belonging in the leather community. And, as contextualized by Taberzi in her book, this praxis builds on critiques from queer theorists such as Jay Halberstam, Heather Love, and Jose Esteban Munoz, who argue that contending with these fraught histories helps us move beyond simplistic, celebratory accounts of the queer past in order to create a queer future more in line with ever-diversifying queer constituencies. I like to say it's world-making on a small scale because they've always (laughs) been humble, exhibitions, um, they've been temporal in processes, and they're highly contextual. But as a whole, the theory has two facets. Mm -hmm. One is to expose and illuminate um, the heteronormativity of all museums, even sex museums. Um, And the other is to cope with ethically fraught objects from queer cultures. And so in the last chapter in the book, in Queer Curatorship, which is titled Queer Curatorship, I'm using and inspired by Isaac Julian's eight-minute short film, The Attendant, where a white leather man um, walks up the steps of the Wilberforce House in England. We see in the context of that film paintings of slave ships being morphed into Tom of Finland erotic scenes and a kind of switch sexuality between the guard, the attendant, who is a black man, and the visitor, the white leather man, who take turns whipping each other in the space of the Wilberforce house. And I was really inspired by that to think about 
the intersecting genealogies and histories of eroticism and discipline, and the ways in which leather culture appropriates and reconfigures scenes of non-consensual pain and torture for erotic purposes. And so this really grounded the theory and the idea from the film for me when we found within the context, within the museum, the Leather Archives and Museum, a leather short sword sheath whip that had previously been displayed just as any other toy. Um, one of the volunteers there who was a tremendous mentor to me named Chuck M, who sadly passed away this year, um, he was a volunteer um, at uh, the archives when he said something's interesting about this one. This one looks particularly old, has a particular aura to it that just incites me to ask the leadership at the museum to investigate this. So we sent it away for its provenance to be tracked and the experts came back to say that it was probably most likely used as an instrument of non-consensual torture on an antebellum Louisiana plantation. I was working at the director, as the director of programming at the time, and so I was obligated as a staff person to go to the board meetings that happened every two years. People came from all over the country, um, and this leather sword sheath whip was on the itinerary, and it was very ceremoniously brought in. And without saying much of anything, just saying, pass it around and tell me what you think about it. And so everyone around the table kind of felt like we're being set up. And I could see the performances of disgust and distance and then she um, related what we had found out through the provenance. And the board overwhelmingly at the time said, we need to get this out of here. We need to get it in offsite storage because we are a marginalized population, a subculture within the gay community. I mean, not all even gay folks we've been attacked. I mean, many of you may know that during the plague years, what Sarah Schulman calls the plague years, um, leather communities were inordinately lamed for the dissemination of the virus um, and fisting and other leather practices. Um, uh, dungeons were blamed and shut down. But after the board meeting, I was talking to Chuck M and, and the leadership, Rick and, and Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Storer, who are partners, and I said, I th actually think this is a great opportunity. We're always talking about how we're sh our strengths are in the white leather community post-World War II, and that's great but we need to look to the future toward the next generation and we need to invite and start hailing other audiences and I think one way to do that is to go there and have these hard conversations about the intersecting and diverging histories of discipline and eroticism but also about racism within the leather community and so we built a small exhibit uh, that became a series called Debates in Leather they like to call me the can of worm opener and um, I tried to frame that with the looping of the film in the media lounge uh, of, of Isaac Julian's attendant, a conversation about how we need to remember where these practices come from and to update safe, sane, and consensual, the mantra, uh, for s to be safer, saner, and you know, really think about what does consent mean in certain scenes like slavery scenes or plantation scenes to the table. Um, we have more volunteers of color. We've done more with race. Collections have come in. Um, and so in that sense, I was interrupting a marginalized community even within the gay community 
as a way to enact queer curatorship. So it's not, mm -hmm. this book is mm -hmm. not about straight versus gay. Yeah. This is not about hetero versus homo. This is about the normativities that can crop up even in the most radical groups within queer cultures. Mm -hmm. And we always need to remain vigilant to that. Another example would be the exhibition that I put on at the Leslie Loma Museum of Gay and Lesbian Art last year. And queer curatorship there took another tact. Um, so I wanted to re-display artworks within the context of an art museum, but I wanted to transgress normative museum genres. You know, we often have siloed experiences, and academia is such a great example of the disciplinary silos we can sometimes get in and how important interdisciplinary work is. Well, I wanted to bring my work, my interest in interdisciplinarity, vis-a-vis -vis queer curatorship, to the space of the Leslie Lohman. And so, rather than just re-display these works that had been centered, I spent a lot of time writing the text and getting the stories that largely exist only in the memories of the artist who had been censored to capture an archive of censorship of situations that typically happen very hush-hush. So gossip, innuendo, not necessarily fact, quote-unquote, information. So I see that as a queer curatorial, valuing hearsay as important historical knowledge, uh, that memory and history need to be related. And history really is just the memory of those who won, right? And so what would a history from below look like? Um, and then also inviting people to move in and out of different registers, right? So they could read the text and get the story, but also alongside a lot of uh, displays, we had videos that people could listen to of protests both for and against the display of these artworks. And then I intermixed ephemera borrowed from the Leather Archives and Museum, my own collection, a VHS cassette tape of Marlon Riggs' uh, Tongues Untied that was censored on PBS in the 90s, and masks and other protest materials um, from some of the um, activists who pushed back against the National Portrait Gallery in 2010 when David Warnerovich's um, A Fire in My Belly was censored there. At this very particular moment in the struggle for queer liberation, widespread acknowledgement of last year's Supreme Court ruling in favor of gay marriage continues to be celebrated as an all-encompassing win for queer people across the country. Yet, 49 people, mostly queer and trans people of color, were recently murdered at a gay nightclub in Orlando. And in the aftermath of the shooting, the machinery of state violence and the gay community is becoming more intimately entangled through calls for increased security at LGBTQ events like Pride, despite the reality that an increased police presence renders the space dangerous for queer and trans people of color and those who are undocumented. In light of all of this, we wanted to consider what role a praxis of queer curatorship could play in this intricate context, and how it might be used to resist the violence of homonormativity. Homonormativity has had two kind of strains of theoretical emphasis, one of which has been the instantiation of neoliberal prerogatives and priorities into institutions and in everyday life um, and gay and lesbian formations in particular and I say gay and lesbian for a reason um, and the development of a prescriptive 
set of social codes that define what it means to be a cosmopolitan queer. And I think that some people would say the movement has been hijacked. And I don't disagree with those folks who do make those arguments. But I, I don't want to be so fatalistic about it. Um, I, I do think we can, there is always time and space to rethink and remobilize along different lines of priorities. But I think there's been a big retreat within the mainstream gay and lesbian organizational, political emphasis that has retreated into the privilege of privacy. Privatization, the private sphere, all of these made up things. Um, and the kind of classic example is the Lawrence and Garner v. Texas, right? and the ways in which that solidified a kind of emphasis on sexual rights as long as they happen within the confines of quote unquote home. Um, and the way those rulings came down, the kind of language that the judges used to make those rulings. You know, we even see it with the recent um, overturning of DOMA and the um, marriage uh, cases that happened last year. I think one justice said something to the effect that we do not want to banish these people, meaning gays and lesbians, queers, whatever, to lives of loneliness and despair. Um, and that it is good for the children that their parents be recognized as respectable citizens. I'm not against marriage. I'm against all the money, time, and efforts, and the ways in which certain organizations have supported politicians whose interests only apply to a very specific raced and classed echelon of the gay and lesbian community. To shift back into the museum space, we asked Jen if she could expand a bit more on her statement, one of the primary points of attention in her book, that all museums are sex museums. How might we identify the sex in the supposedly sexless, or the queerness in the supposedly straight, of the traditional museum exhibits? To answer this, she tells us the story of a particular instance of queering the tour of a museum. This journalist wrote to me and she said, I heard about your book. I'd like to take a walk with you through the art museum. I want you to prove it to me. All museums are sex museums. And so as I'm walking through with her, there happened to be a fabulous photography exhibition about, um, La about Latin American photography. Um, and there was this one series of photographs about migrant workers laying down in the, in the back of a pickup truck who are either hiding or sleeping, but their bodies were really close and pressed together, right? And so I had just got done teaching some Nyan Shaw about the history of anti-sodomy laws in the country and the ways in which Lawrence and Garner v. Texas, but really Lawrence v. Texas, I'll go back to that name because that's really what covered it over, was the emphasis on gay sexuality as the reason du jour of why, who was being discriminated against. Well, Nyan Shaw's work has clearly shown that anti-sodomy laws were really enacted um, to prevent 
um, homosociality and conviviality among migrant men of color. And so I'm saying the word sodomy, I'm saying queer, and this little museum group, all heads turn at once away from their tour group and they start listening to me and start kind of following me <laughs> around, right? And so this completely different history that was unexpected to them, to the person that was interviewing me, and to this random tour group, but they wanted to know, right? And so there's all these different histories that we can tell about these objects when we look through the lens of queer curatorship, when we look through the lens of all museums or sex museums. One person who I found really inspiring is the artist Andrea Fraser. She has this series of museum performances, um, one in which she um, puts on the headphones for the audio tour and does interpretive dances of the audio guides. <laughs> and so the texture of the paintbrush on the canvas. And she's lifting her skirt and embracing the pole. You know, and what does that do in that space, right? And that's also why I loved sex museums so much, because they allowed for lovers. I mean, museums are such cruisy places, right? So much sex goes on in those bathrooms, sometimes in the galleries themselves. Um, and there, people went to sex museums to get turned on, right? But that's what people do quite often in any museum. Um, but it was interesting to see what was the line in those museums. So for example, in the World Erotic Art Museum one day, a woman decided to undress and she wanted to go about the exhibits naked. Well, that was the line. <laughs> that was the line itself. So, but to see where in what ways we can rethink the tour that's why I love this Mexico City, now the now defunct Mexico City Museum, El Museo de Sexo, so much. Tacho Pedilla, the curator there, wanted the tour guides to play on the logic of strip poker. And so as they were going around learning the new pedagogy and the new sexual vocabulary of 21st century queer sexualities, the tour guides would ask the questions. And if they got them wrong, which of course there would be some wrong answers, they had to take out an article of clothing. <laughs> to keep the sex in the sex museum. Also, everything in that exhibition was open to touch. And he told me quite with a glimmer in his eye, he was actually quite happy about it, that a lot of the um, sex toys mysteriously disappeared sometimes. So people would steal them and take them. And he loved that. <laughs> um, so that really kind of got me thinking about, wow, how could we approach these display choreographies in a more sensual way that's playful, that's exciting, and that breaks with the normative ways in which we are coerced to interanimate and interact with the space that we call a museum. Tiberzi then discussed the failure of sex museums and how their closure highlights both where people's anxieties lie and what scapegoats are used to adjudicate the failure of both the museum as a business and the failure of highlighting sex as a political and intellectual way to explore the human experience. For instance, Tiberzi told us one narrative of a sex museum in Copenhagen where in the wake of its closure, some of the leaders constructed Islamophobic narratives scapegoating the Arab and Muslim diaspora in Scandinavia as being so powerfully sex-negative that it resulted in the closure of the museum. 
Reactions such as these underscore how reluctant we are to confront queer sexuality, instead turning to pre-existing narratives of violence, attempting to turn one marginalized population against another. In the face of these challenges, we leave you with Tiberzi's thoughts on how a museum can foster a queer praxis and resistance that enables us to create, nurture, and protect queer space. I think that doing and making public intellectual work, public history, public art, and praxis, that meeting ground of all the amazing successes that queer theory and queer studies, I mean, the fight is not over, right, for legitimacy, but we have attained a certain level of legitimacy within the academy. But our work is needed elsewhere as well. And how can we make that work accessible? Not necessarily by giving up the words that we have found that help us to define our histories, our oppression, our future. Um, so I'm not talking about getting rid of specialized language that some people call jargon. But I'm talking about other modes of sharing that research with wider audiences. And I find art, performance, and particularly for this project in sex museums, the museum has such a potent potential space to do that work. And it's a space that students in high school visit. It's a, it's a space that our seniors, our elders volunteer in. It's a great platform outside the academy where the academy can collaborate but also be humble and learn new sets of knowledges from those museum publics, but also reach out to a number of people. So I think it's a very important time, now more so than ever, we need queer praxis to push against the priority of privacy and privatization as priority number one within the mainstream gay and lesbian movement. Um, we still need to make noise. We still need to disrupt in ways where we can write love letters to our naysayers, but when necessary, resort to direct action. Thanks to Dr. Jennifer Tyberzi for taking the time to speak with us, and thank you all for listening. Co-executive producers of This Rhetorical Life are Carrie Ann Soto and Ben Kubrick with additional production from Kate Siegfried and Dylan Muller.